0: All right. Uh, Now, let's kind of recap uh, where we've been, Uh, at least last week, and talking about being kingdom uh, people. We talked about being sojourners and exiles. Uh, You may notice my voice sounds a little different. I actually uh, feel better than I sound today, Um, but my voice may not have the strength to to power through this morning, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, But last week, we talked about being sojourners and exiles. uh, this world is not our home if we are in Christ, we are citizens of heaven, and so we talked about our temptations in exile, our temptations to either separate from the culture around us that is not bent or moving towards God and pursuing the things of Jesus, and just can cut ourselves off completely, or to assimilate and try to blend in and say, well, I'm going to go with the flow because I don't want to stand out, I don't want to be ostracized, and so uh, I'm going to be kind of a seamless, uh, uh, not, not stand out um, from the culture of the world. And then we talked about not just our temptations, but our calling in exile, right? We're not called to separate or assimilate. We're called to be a distinct influence in and not of the world uh, to seek its welfare, seek the welfare of the place that God has us. And so we talked about that uh, last week. This morning, we will not only conclude the section of kingdom, kingdom people in the book, but our entire series on the kingdom. And so... Uh, Next week, we'll begin a new series from the book of Ecclesiastes called Chasing Meaning. Uh, The world offers fulfillment and meaning in all kinds of different things. and In the book of Ecclesiastes, we have someone writing who had everything they could possibly ever want, dream, or imagine, and still found that it was all meaningless apart from God, that God gives meaning to everything. Uh, And so we'll start that series next week. But this morning... We're going to revisit the familiar theme of already and not yet that we keep encountering with the kingdom of God, Uh, this time specifically with a focus on believers as both saints and sinners. So if you saw the title, Saints and Sinners, it's not two different people. This is believers are both saints and sinners. Uh, Before we dig into that, that duality, let's review our definition of God's kingdom, see if we're still on track to fulfilling that with the previous week's. I'm sure everyone remembers the definition that we established way back in week one. God's kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. So God is administering his reign through his people, and this is only possible because we've been redeemed. We are in Christ. Apart from Jesus, we're incapable of pleasing God, living for him in the way he's called us to. Only in Christ are we able to do that. And so through God's people, uh, those who have surrendered by faith to Jesus, He's administering his reign uh, in the places that he sends us, in the places that uh, we exist. He wants to reign through us in his place while in fellowship or relationship with us. This is huge, right? This is what really makes the new heaven and new earth uh, set before us in eternity. That's what makes it paradise. Uh, I've said before that if we can imagine heaven and it's and God's not there, it's not really the paradise that he's promised us, right? It's just Um, the blessings, it's the gifts, not the giver, that we're really in love with. The very presence of God in relationship with us. Sometimes we get sidetracked by lesser blessings, lesser gifts, but the real treasure in all of this is fellowship with God and the presence of God. And this has been the design for man since the beginning. Treat pointed this out in the book, that God's presence among his people goes from unhindered in the garden before the fall of man to restricted access in the physical tabernacle and temple in the, New, in the Old Testament, to Jesus tabernacling with us in the New Testament, the presence of God in the person of Jesus among his people, and then eventually in eternity back to perfect, unhindered fellowship with us in the kingdom, just like it was in the garden before sin entered the picture. That's what we're promised and destined for in Jesus, but we aren't there yet, right? It's a not yet. We know it will happen because God has promised it, and God keeps his promises. Jesus will come back someday. So the question that matters most in this life, when Jesus comes back, will you be judged as righteous or unrighteous? It's not a question of what kind of day you're having when he comes back, right? Or what kind of week you've had, or what kind of month you had, or what kind of second half of life you've had. It's a matter of, have you received the righteousness of Jesus by faith? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you trusted him with your whole heart? If so, the Bible says you are forgiven and justified and the righteousness of Christ is placed on you. This is our and anyone's only hope for salvation. This is amazing. But believers are righteous and everything else that I just said. Why aren't we perfect? Why do we still sin? Well, as I mentioned earlier, just like the kingdom is already but not yet, there's an already but not yetness to us in Christ we are simultaneously both saints and sinners some things about us are already eternally true and some things have not yet come to fruition listen to this from john chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 and then we'll unpack it a little bit first <clears throat> john chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of god and so we are The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Does anybody remember that old song? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Will knows it. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God, that we, see, you put scripture to songs, people, I haven't, I probably turned that when I was like four, I don't know, but if you put scripture to music, you, people remember stuff. So, uh, anyway, <clears throat> you don't have to put it to music, but it helps, burn it in your brain, uh, like cocoa melon. <clears throat> um so anyway, sometimes I read these verses and I start hearing songs in my head uh, that taught me those verses a long time ago. So we spent a, a whole Sunday already on the fact that those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus are children of God. We're blessed with everything that accompanies that sonship. The emphasis this morning, though, is not so much on the blessings that we receive as sons and daughters, but the fact that God's Word says we already are, in Christ, children of God. There is an already in the kingdom of God. Our identity as God's children is already true. It's already an actuality, not just an eventuality to happen later. Verse 2 says we are God's children now. Amazing, but verse 2 also says what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that we will be like God. So here is a not yet to our final identity in Jesus that we are awaiting. This glorification will be finalized when Jesus recreates the earth and makes all things new, including his followers. And he hasn't made all things new yet. So we exist in what we call this kind of messy middle between the already and the not yet of God's kingdom as already but not yet types of people. We refer to this as progressive sanctification, uh, a big fancy term that means that we are in the process of being made more holy, more and more like Jesus until he comes again. There are some kind of false beliefs that think that we can reach this perfection, this side of heaven. We cannot. Scripture tells us that when Jesus comes back and we are glorified like him, then we will be kind of in this complete state. But until then, we are moving, right, not like a straight line, but we are moving Christward in our sanctification, being made more and more like Jesus progressively. That is a not-yet kind of in-progress situation. And yet, we have been declared righteous. We are justified. So the legal, right, the legal account towards us, if, if God's looking at uh, sin and punishment and what, who deserves what, he looks at us and he sees innocent because he sees the righteousness of Christ. And yet, we are not perfect yet because we've not been glorified in eternity. So we are justified. We are Righteous. And yet we are becoming more and more holy like Christ, uh, more and more like Christ as we la- navigate this life. Paul writes about this, uh, this tension in Romans 7. He speaks to this duality and how the spirit of God and his flesh desire different things. Romans seven twenty-one through 25. <clears throat> Paul says, so I find, to, find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. There's some disagreement about what Paul, in that section, if Paul is like, before he's a Christian, when he's a Christian, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but I think this section right here, you can see in verse 22, that if he delights in the law and in his inner being, this is evidence that Paul is justified. He is, he is trusted in Christ for salvation. He's a believer. But he still, in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God in my mind, with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So Paul acknowledges how, how terrible this is, how frustrating this is, how, uh, how this kind of torments him. Right? He says, I'm, I'm, just, I'm wretched that, that my inner being delights in the, in the law of the Lord and, and wants to please the Lord and wants to do what's right and is able to please the Lord in Christ. And yet, there's still this temptation, this flesh, right, that wars against the spirit. He's drawn to, the flesh is drawn to evil. But he also mentions the cure, the cure right, the solution, when he says that Jesus will deliver him from this body of death. He's navigating life as a justified saint of God who still sins, saint and sinner. Paul's and our eternal identity as children who have been given the righteousness of Jesus is sealed and secure, and yet we do not walk around in perfection, impervious to temptation and without sin. We are moving toward a perfect glorification that we will not reach in this life. So we know what we used to be, we know what we are now, and we know that we are promised more. This is what it means to be saints and sinners. So how do we approach life then? How does this perspective apply to our everyday? Here's three things from Jeremy Treat that we acknowledge in life as saints and sinners that keep us moving forward in Jesus. Number one, expect victory. Expect victory. If Jesus is still alive and still king, seated on his throne, then we can expect victory. Not just in glory when he returns, but until then. During the stage of not yet in the kingdom, God is still advancing his kingdom and building his family. Jesus said he would build his church. Jesus prayed for unity among believers. Jesus restored and renewed and redeemed to point people to his kingdom, and he still restores and renews and redeems to point people to his kingdom. So as we see and seek first, we should expect more people to trust in Jesus by faith. We should expect racial reconciliation. We should expect victory over addiction. We should expect physical healing. We should expect mended relationships. Not that we will see this in every case or with every person, but we will see it. God is still on mission. The fact that the church, capital C Church, this is believers in the whole world, is still here is evidence of this. If God were done using all of his people, to restore what was broken, he would call us home, right? Or Jesus would come back and uh, the, the, the mission would be done. There is no silent or dark period where God ceases to work and save until Jesus returns. And if God has started a work, he will finish that work. Philippians 1.6 tells us, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There will be no unfinished business, no incomplete masterpieces was the Kind of the reference that Treat made in the book. We don't know when, where, who, or how Jesus wants to restore, but we know that he still can and he still does. So we should expect victory. But because this is the messy middle of the not yet, while we should expect victory, we should not be surprised by struggle. This is number two don't be surprised by struggle. Have I mentioned already? We still exist in the not-yetness of the kingdom um, almost every week, right? Multiple times. There's still brokenness, sadness, disease, anger, hopelessness, etc. Revelation 21:5, where Jesus said He is making all things new, is not fully realized. Jesus promised in 16, uh, sorry, John 16:33, that we would face trouble. He says, "You will in this world, you will face tribulation." It's inevitable. The world is still broken, groaning, as the Bible says, for redemption. Creation cries out, it says. There will be times of victory, as I just mentioned, but there will also be struggles. We all know people who have not been healed, whose relationships weren't mended, who never trust in Christ. This brokenness shouldn't surprise us. It should serve to remind us that sin is still a problem, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And it should grieve us. I think often we're not surprised, but we don't react in the right way. It shouldn't drive us to lose faith or give up on God's mission, but it should move us to long for Jesus' return. Treat, the author of the book, referred to this as lament. Lament. To cry out to God over the brokenness in the world, that each trial or tragedy should move us to pray, Come, Lord Jesus. What are the alternatives, right? To be angry at God, to be angry at the world, um, to throw in the towel, to give up on our faith? That's not where our battle is. That's not what God has called us to. If anything, it should grow our faith because we know that Jesus has promised something and, and, and God keeps his promises. And if he's promised to, to make good on restoring the broken world, despite how bad we see it getting, then our faith should increase because we're trusting that God is still going to do something about it. We press into him all the more. Brokenness stirs us to want to see his return come sooner rather than later so that there is less suffering experienced, less loss, less grief. It stirs us to long for Jesus' return, and it stirs us to share in his mission until he returns. It's discouraging to see and experience so much darkness. And so the last thing we need to do is take heart. This is the third thing, take heart. The command to take heart and to not be afraid is the most prevalent command in Scripture. I referenced John 16, 33, just moments ago, where Jesus promised, in this world, you will have trouble. Kind of a depressing verse, right? It's just the bad news. But the rest of the verse, he says, in the very same verse, take heart because I have overcome the world. Let's remember here that grammar is our friend, guys. Just as we emphasized earlier that we are already children of God, even though we are not yet what we will eventually be, Jesus in John 16:33 says he has overcome the world. This is past tense. This is done. This is not a not yet. This victory is not a not yet. There may be a not yet to seeing the full effect of this victory, but the victory is won and secured. It does not hang in the balance. And in the promise of this victory, we take heart. We know Jesus finishes what he starts. We know Jesus has promised us his presence always. In Matthew 28, he gives the Great Commission. And he says, Lo, I will be with you always. He's commissioned us this great redemptive work, and he's promised us that he'd be with us always as we share in his mission and press on in this fallen world. So when tragedy strikes, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. But we take heart. When things don't make sense, when it seems like evil will win, when we are hurting or suffering, when the headlines highlight the depravity all around us, When the bills are piling up, when we can't seem to stay well, when we can't seem to catch a break or even catch our breath, we take heart. Because the one who saves, the one who redeems, the one who will make all things new, the one who has already overcome the world is with us. And in this, we take heart. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, just for your kingdom promises. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, I, I think just this great resource that we've been able to kind of work through that um, that shows us how to how to just live out this kingdom life and apply it to everything around us. God, I, I pray that we would um, we would expect victory. Uh, I know I'm I'm guilty of this, where I uh, I often assume. Um, the worst, or uh, expect bad things, Um, and yet you have called us to expect victory because you are still alive, you're still working, Uh, you have still called us to good works, and you still want to renew and redeem and restore. And so God, make us an expectant people who are um, watching for your victories around us. Watching for transformation, watching for for new life in Christ, watching for for ministry, for uh, for mended relationships, and for uh, for for people to to get well um, miraculously, and for um, people to come to know you, and people to reconcile, um, victories that that reflect the kingdom of God. Help us to expect these things, Lord. God, I, I pray that. Um, that struggle would not uh, sideline us, that would not uh, catch us off guard. That every struggle, as we know, is an opportunity to grow in our faith, to become more like Jesus, to suffer well, to suffer by faith, to identify more closely with Jesus who suffered more than we would, could ever imagine. And that amidst all of it, Jesus, that we would, we would take heart that your promise would ring true in our hearts and minds, that, yes, we will face trials, we will face trouble, and yet you have overcome this world, already overcome this world. And so Jesus, bring these promises to our mind, promises that will encourage us this is another one of the reasons that you've given us each other in the church, Jesus, is to uh, when one of us is discouraged, another can point us to truth in you and remind us to to take heart. Not that we find our, our courage in the words of another person, but in the promises that you have given us and the victory that you have secured. And Lord, just to read this prayer. Um, the end of the book that we've been going through, God, that this would be our prayer. Your kingdom come in my life. Your kingdom come in my family. Your kingdom come in our church. Your kingdom come in our city. Your kingdom come in this world. Lord, may our hearts, may our lives line up with these prayers that we are desiring your kingdom in all these areas of our lives to see you display your reign, your rule through your people to give others a glimpse of what it will be like in eternity in your presence free from all the brokenness and darkness and things that we've talked about that we still struggle through today. Thank you. Uh, We thank you for the already. We thank you for the not yet and we pray, God, that you would find us faithful in this messy middle. Your kingdom come, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we're